0: I'm Nicholas Penrake and you're listening to A Trader's Life, the podcast where I get to talk to successful traders about their approach to trading, how they started out and went from broke or breaking even to pulling in thousands of dollars a week. Trading is a tough game. They say only around 5% of those who try actually make a profit. Join me for A Trader's Life to gain some valuable insights from the market wizards I get to talk to. Serge Trader is the official capital funding partner of A Trader's Life podcast. Hey, how's it going? My next guest is Michael A. Gaiad, an award-winning results-oriented investment manager at Tidal Financial Group. He's also the author of the Lead Lag Report that outlines some powerful long-term investment strategies. In this episode, he has some interesting things to say about day trading and volatility. Let's get to it. Michael, hi. Welcome to Trader's Life. How are you doing?
1: Uh, I appreciate the invite. As is always the case, uh, I don't know what day it is, except that it's the day that ends in Y.
0: <laughs> it sounds pr- pretty frantic, your schedule. What have you been up to?
1: Uh, non-stop media work and all the other things I do on the content side. So, you know, I'm, I'm a portfolio manager of uh, three rules-based funds, a mutual fund and two ETFs. And all that means is that, you know, I've I, came up with the intellectual property behind the strategies, but the uh, rotations have nothing to do with my opinion. So they're largely, um, and not really largely, entirely, um, driven based on outputs that have nothing to do with me. So thankfully I, that frees up my time to do a lot of other things and get my name out there, put research out there. But, uh, the challenge of course is that I often find that I take on too much, uh, when I do that. So thankfully that's a bit on autopilot, but for the most part, it's, uh, it's, I'm still wildly busy.
0: Where did you start with your trading?
1: Yeah, I've, I've brought this point up before in other um, podcasts, but you know, kind of grew up in the business uh, with my father having worked with Merrill Lynch in the late 80s um, and hearing him talk about markets, uh, saw him start his own investment advisory firm. And uh, you know, I got the bug I want to say probably mid-late 90s. I had done a couple of trades on ETrade uh, back then, <clears throat> I to remember doing some trades at a school library. And yeah, obviously that was as the tech bubble was starting, but that was sort of my first um, foray into actual trading, at least on the discretionary side, not that I knew what I was doing. I just saw that a particular company or stock uh, chart looked positive, which I guess means that a lot of my initial decision-making is probably not that dissimilar from a lot of people that you see on FinTwit.
0: Yeah, and how did you advance your own learning?
1: I tend to be um, very obsessive when I get into a particular subject. So, uh, as I was getting interested and involved in markets, uh, yeah, I basically would read all kinds of books, any kind of book I could get my hands on, whether it was an equivalent of, you know, An Idiot's Guide to Investing or uh, much more uh, sort of complex books like those from Edward to McGee technical analysis explained, Martin Pring's work, you know, I, I basically kind of took in as much as I could. And yeah, obviously my father was an influence in some of that knowledge, but as uh, the general sort of a way of my approach towards things, um, I always like to try to go to the source. So even though my father might have said something about investing or in markets as a kid, I would still want to see if it was actually valid or not, right? Not that I didn't uh, trust what my father was saying, but I'm, I'm just a fan of looking to the left with equal signs, I always say. So, you know, it was really a lot of books, a lot of reading, a lot of uh, analysis, a lot of uh, looking at other historical periods. And all this is obviously before I started sort of my back testing phase in markets. Um, But that largely is what laid the the groundwork. And, you know, unfortunately, when I was a kid, um, that wasn't exactly something people wanted to talk about in the playground. Uh, You know, everybody else wanted to play with their Game Boy or play with whatever they wanted to play with and, and interact. I was I was the nerd that was reading books nonstop.
0: Yeah. So was it actually more a fascination with how things worked in the markets than just, you know, I want to make some money? Because I mean, the typical thing is you jump into trading because you think, first of all, <laughs> sadly, oh, it's easy to make the money. And, you know, you blur for your accounts and what have you. But it's sort of about the money. Whereas for you, it sounds more like you were just you were really fascinated by how the almost like how the machine works you wanted to like some kids want to take a car apart you want to kind of get into the market and take it to pieces and understand how it how it functions is like yeah,
1: i think close? i think it's accurate. yeah i think i think that's part of my my personality in general um and you know it's 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 a really fascinating domain in the sense that you may want to take apart the machine and see how it works. But even if you did that and then tried to put everything back in place exactly as you found it, it, it would then, in terms of the output, be very different because, you know, as you know, investing the stock market is not a perfect science, and there's a lot of randomness, luck, a lot of chaos to market movement, a lot of butterfly effects that cause unintended consequences. So there's a part of this that, for me, I think was a broader fascination with something that has rules, but doesn't necessarily follow the rules all the time. And, you know, just kind of the excitement of it, you know, I, it, it's hard for people to to really, I think, appreciate it now because you don't have the same dynamic as today as you did back then. But, you know, when I was, when I was 16, I worked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and that's when there were actual people there, right? It wasn't a studio like it is today. Um, and, You can't you can't fake that kind of energy right? to kind of be in the thick of it, see people trading, winning, losing. I mean, there's a certain uh, excitement that I was fortunate to get exposure to. And that, I think, only kind of motivated me more. Not that it was necessarily sort of a sport, but there's an element of that back then that felt like I was in, you know, a very competitive uh physical type of activity even though it was really just kind of running back and forth across different parts of the exchange so um hard to hard to really kind of get that feeling now uh, obviously with uh, a lot of the
0: market yeah we're more isolated yeah right yeah and you're isolated,
1: yeah. And, you yeah know, and people try and get that feeling with with discord groups and trading communities but the reality is nothing nothing quite compares to sort of those old days
0: yeah yeah how did you develop your own strategy? I mean, just take, I mean, obviously you've got more than one, but I mean, you're mainly stocks, right? What uh, ETFs, uh, how do you look at the market? What, can you describe your strategy? And I know it's probably got various moving parts, but give it a go.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I have the, I, I tend to look at things from the, from the standpoint of, there's really only kind of two ways to think about markets, right? Low volatility regimes or high volatility regimes. Uh, most, okay. most assets, you know, uh, go up when you're in low vaulted regimes, um, few assets benefit from high vaulted regimes. And for the most part, you know, I'd argue that most investments are just different degrees of sensitivity to beta, right, to sort of the broader stock market movement. So if you view the world from the lens of low volatility and high volatility, and then the conditions that favor low volatility or favor high volatility, it helps you think through sort of what your opportunity set to express a bet should be and, you know, what types of strategies to implement to benefit from those regime shifts that inevitably happen. The um, And that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of, you know, backtesting different signals, trying to identify what asset classes, what parts of the investable landscape allow you to be wrong but still make money, because the truth is there really are very few uh, differentiator uh, assets, right, that that allow you to benefit from higher risk. So with that framework, I started then codifying things, started looking at different intermarket relationships that would historically tell you in advance of a change in volatility. Because once you've answered that, you've answered a lot about how do you allocate. Now, when you view things from the standpoint of volatility you also have to be very mindful and i think this is the case with pretty much all investors very mindful of the point that um you could be in a cycle like the mid 90s to you know blow off top early 2000 or a cycle like 2013 to you know 2020 where for the most part it's a low volatility cycle so yeah have a mindset around volatility and trying to benefit from volatility regime shifts but you're in a cycle where there's less frequency of, of volatility shifts right happening in that sequence. Um, yeah. So what I, I mentioned that because as is the case with any, any investment approach, any strategy, right? There's always going to be cycles that benefit one's mentality, ones we looking at markets and cycles that don't. Um, it so happens when I launched my mutual fund in 2012, for example, the ATAC rotation fund, I launched in a low volatility regime. QE3 comes along, ZERP comes along It's all about, Uh, fangs i'm rotating risk on risk off you know trying to play volatility that doesn't want to sort of stick um 2020 happens obviously i have a war story there but yeah the, the broader point is that um if you think of things less in terms of trend and more in terms of volatility more often than not i'd argue over long cycles you end up getting much better results
0: okay and what about now we're now in 2023 april how are you looking at the volatility as it is now
1: so I'm biased, right? I mean, everyone is biased in this industry. Yeah. Yeah, I'm biased because I launched these funds that are all designed to you know, play off of volatility regime shifts, risk on, risk off. But if we take a step back, I do think that um, there's that old saying, right? You, every age of turbulence needs an age of moderation before it. Now, obviously, we had a lot of turbulence with the COVID crash and you have a lot of turbulence with uh, inflation, but... The effect of higher rates on average, I think, should mean more risk because higher rates against a starting point of extremely uh, high leverage and debt in the system probably means you're going to have more tail events uh, likely happening, more of these one in a thousand year type of events happening you know, once every year, every other year. So if I'm right that we're in a cycle that results in more volatility pulses, then all that means in terms of this year and investors in general, in terms of the way they think about things, is to prepare prepare for some more gut-wrenching movement, right? Now, selfishly, I want to see that because in my world, I need some of these volatility spikes, some of these volatility uh, clustering moments to really stand out with my own strategies, my own funds. But I do think there is a logic to the idea that we're we're well past an era of low vol, smooth market movements. We already had that. And in the fight against inflation, uh, any kind of overshoot by the Federal Reserve, you know, makes that even more likely.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, to my mind, we seem to be in a, a period of so many conflicting narratives. Uh, you know, so many traders I talk to disagree with what the Fed are doing, you know, with the hiking the rates and stagflation. How do you navigate all that sort of the conflicting narratives that we've got going on so many people are saying you yeah, know we're going to get a crash we're going to get a people like Jim Rickards and so on that you know it's, it's going to happen and of course it hasn't yet I mean we've had big drops in say the SMP and so on but you know this big black swan event doesn't seem to have quite happened um what's your take on on where we're how we're we going to navigate through all this all these storms all these headwinds and so on
1: well you know so, so I have made that point that Volatility is not fear. Volatility is doubt. And to the extent that you're in an environment where, to your point, there's so many narratives, there's so many variants of opinion, because it's all opinion. Nobody knows what tomorrow is going to bring. But all that yeah. does, does, I think, lend itself to the idea that, you know, that's doubt, right, which should result in, in more violent price gyrations. The thing is, you know, you can be bulls and bears can be right. Just it depends on where you where, where the end point is. Right, so yeah, you know, it's it's. Like I keep going back to this this parallel. I, I keep referencing because some people think I'm I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth, but you know, not not to say that you have to have it play out like 1987. But in 1987, you could have been bullish, bearish, argued for a Fed hiking regime and a Fed cutting regime all in the same 12 months. Right, so the Dow, Joe's Industrial Average. Everyone talks about the, the crash of 87 and Black Monday, but nobody ever talks about what happened before the crash of 87. Uh, the Dow was up like 38 percent from, you know, mm-hmm. on a, a yearly basis just before effectively or you know towards the weeks leading up to the 97 crash. That's a melt up. Then you had a crash. That's a tail event. The Fed was hiking rates, right, in in, in in that move. And then, you know, Greenspan comes in and they pivot. So everyone was right right? But the sequence was all that matters. And that's why I always go back to this, this line I keep saying on on Twitter, on my at-lead Lag report account. Like, um, you know, path matters more than prediction. Like, everybody has to come up with some view of what likely happens tomorrow based on conditions. But, you know, you can have a lot of really interesting dynamics, and the only thing that's going to matter ultimately is how you navigate that sequence. Now, to your point, that's a very, very hard thing to do. In my case, I don't believe that you know you can have a, a, a view of a market crash or even a market melt-up unless you tell me exactly where to buy and sell. That's why I gravitate towards rules-based approaches because you actually have something you can look at as an entry or exit point. The problem that I often find with a lot of these kind of macro views and all these varying opinions is that you can't actually do anything with it.
0: Well, it's certainly in terms of trading, it's very difficult because uh... – you know the sort of lag on it. You know, <laughs> you know, well, we're going to have a crash this year. Well, when, when, when? You know, that's critical. Right. right. Because you know, yeah, it's everything, isn't it? As a trader, um, being right, you know, even next week is possibly too late. Um, right, yeah. and and that's a Very, news,
1: That's what's missed by a lot of the those that listen to you know Twitter Spaces, for example, or listen to the the traditional medias of the world. It's like you know. All this sounds really convincing. All this sounds really compelling. You know, you can have the smartest guy in the world making the most intelligent argument for why stocks will do what they do. And that person could be right. But unless you know exactly when, that's why I always go back to it's about conditions, right? So when you have that sort of mindset of conditions, right, the favor higher or lower volatility, you know, an accident or not in, in, in a portfolio in markets, then you don't have to worry so much about the exact mile marker. You just have to know that, you know, this is the set of circumstances where you need to slow down with your portfolio, with how much risk you're taking. Um, and, you know, listen, there are plenty of times. That's why I like the driving analogy. There are plenty of times when you're driving and it's sunny and then suddenly there's like a, it's like an April shower, right? It just happens out of nowhere and you got to slow down for that period, yeah. but still sunny within, you know, uh, a mile of that. Right. So, But that's where the dynamism of trading has to come in play. And I think you can only really kind of do that if you have, again, that mindset of conditions as opposed to this is what's going to happen next.
0: Let me cut in here to say a few words about my sponsor, Surge Trader. First off, I think we can all agree if you're trading your own funds, unless you're mega rich to begin with, it's pretty difficult to make trading cover all your bills and allow you to have a night out now and again. Whereas... Trading with a prop firm means you get to trade a substantial sum of capital from the get-go. There are a few good prop firms out there, but for me, Surge Trader really stands out. They offer a range of funds of up to $1 million and allow traders to keep up to 90% of the profits. Their trading rules are straightforward, and they do not impose a time limit on how quickly you must reach the set profit target. You can trade stocks, indices, energies, metals, forex, and crypto. And you can get started with as little as $250. So if you've ever thought of trading with a prop firm, go over to Surge Trader now, check out the various funds you can audition for, choose one, select purchase, then click the button that asks you if you have a coupon code. Enter promo code ATL10OFF, that's all one word, and that'll give you 10% off your next challenge. You'll find a link in the show notes that gives you that 10% off. Click on that and away you go. What is your style of trading? I mean, are you mixing up scalping with you know, swing trading or position trading? I mean, because you've got a mutual fund, obviously, you're not scalping very much for that. But... Do you vary your styles and activity in the markets?
1: So all the um, all the research papers and the funds themselves, they're all using weekly signals. So the turnover is very, very high, north of 1,000%. So it's, it's more like a hedge fund, super, super active from that perspective. It's much more on the swing trading side. Not to say that every week it trades, the funds respectively trade, but you know, there's at least a potential shift at the end of every week. Um, And, you know, it's all in, all out, right? So it's as aggressive as it gets. So, you know, when when the strategies work, they work in a very spectacular way. When they don't work, obviously you're off-size because you're in the complete wrong asset class for a moment in time. Um, In the the fund management world, you almost have to have something that is so dramatically different to get attention because there's no way I'm going to compete with Vanguard by putting together another uh, plain vanilla stock-based fund, you know that would uh, I charge a five basis point fee on, right? So you have to do something unique and different. So it's much more active, much more swing trading, including the mutual fund, purely trading other ETFs, you know, within that wrapper. Uh, but it, it is it is something that is, is I find no matter how much I communicate, people really can't get their minds around because there really aren't that many strategies that are that active, let alone go all in treasuries which is you know when that trade works against equities really results in you know what what they would call a shiny object moment right where that performance stands out um you're like last year it didn't matter because treasuries behaved worse than equities but you know in those periods where treasuries really diverge from equities on a flight to safety trade assuming the funds get it right you know it's that speed that that active nature which results in the positioning there before it's too late and then hopefully the performance
0: that follows do you have a narrow field of vision in terms of uh, that's probably not the right word but a, a number of sectors or stocks that you trade again and again you know like a you, you just get to know them so well and you study their volatility you've studied their patterns and so on you go back to them again and again or do you shift around according to data you're picking up from wherever your own sources?
1: So the nature of the funds is that they're they're set in their opportunity set. Now, you bring up an interesting point, which has been a frustration of mine for the last decade plus, at, in particular as it relates to my mutual fund. So Roro, my ETF, when it goes offense risk on, it's static, small cap, large growth, right? It's just going to be those two. Mm-hmm. It's just an automatic kind of positioning. In the case of the mutual fund, there's this relative momentum component where it's either large caps, small caps, or emerging markets. Now, prior to QE three, prior to twenty twelve, September twenty twelve, emerging markets, for example, were just a levered way of playing U.S. equities, meaning there was co movement. So, if the S P is up one, emerging markets might be up two, right? They kind of generally kind of move together. Small caps, same deal, right? Higher beta had more sensitivity to uh, to the broader stock market. Here comes QE three. Here comes zero interest rate policy. Here comes fangs. And suddenly the S&P pulls away from everything else. So you end up have this secular tailwind that favors large cap S&P 500, right? Which the fund, again, can position into. But the problem is that if you're trying to do relative momentum and the co-movement isn't there in the other two parts of the opportunity, so that small cap and emerging markets, what happens effectively is you get whipsawed to death. Right? Emerging markets have done okay. nothing for a decade, so momentum just doesn't stick. Small caps peaked out against large caps back in in 2014 and then started underperforming ever since. I reference all that because it's an interesting question in the sense of whenever you do any kind of model or approach, you are inherently making assumptions that certain correlations and co movements will continue, right? That there's, there's going to be some, some pull, you know, across all the averages to each other. It so happens that the S&P pulled away and that's been a cycle which has been maddening, quite honestly, because that's a good example of the point that you can be right in your signal being risk on, but if your expression of being risk on was emerging markets or small caps, you know, good luck, right? And I've I've kind of gone through that for the past decade.
0: What is your approach when you take out on a new trade? I mean, is it very much technical analysis? You know, looking at volatility, the VIX, whatever. Um, taking on board uh, bonds and interest rate and looking at those charts, or are you drawing in news and and that kind of thing specific to maybe a, a cluster of stocks in, e.g., the energy sector? But it, how do, how's the spread? You know, is it more chart and technical, or no, no, fundamental, I, or a mix?
1: You know, what's interesting about this is that. Um, as much as people talk about technicals and they think that I talk in terms of technicals, uh, the the approach and the strategy has nothing to do with charts. or right? anything. it's purely about relative outperformance, um, literally just taking holding period returns and under the assumption that there's drift. So uh, it's purely quantitative in, ni- in that nature, uh, just like the papers, they're purely quantitative in nature. So it, it, while it's under the umbrella of technical analysis because it's quantitative in nature, it's by no means sort of the, the classic chart- charting type of stuff that you would see on all these other platforms i'll tell you candidly i'm not a huge believer in a lot of that stuff and i say that only because <laughs> i've tested a lot of these supposed patterns and relationships uh, from a backtesting perspective none of this stuff is really reliable over time it looks good it sounds like it's a good reason for why stocks should go up or down but when you actually test a lot of this stuff there's really no validity the reality is there are not really that many true predictors when it comes to investing, uh, when it comes to trading in markets. Um, that's why if you focus on just a couple of things, you know that typically explain you know, forty, fifty percent of why markets do what they do. I'd argue over a long period of time, over multiple cycles, you're more likely to get ahead. But you know, I, I'm 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 very skeptical of a lot of these sort of trading uh, patterns that people often reference.
0: So the typical things like head and shoulders, the different, you know, support and resistance and all that kind of thing. It, for you, that's a bit in the background. It's something you tried and yeah. you know, now doesn't really work. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, again. I'm just not, not going to. Again, I've tried testing on it. And yeah, it's, it's funny because remember I, I, I try to ask others, you know, have you actually tested this? I, I, uh, yeah. They show me a single chart with, where it shows a support and resistance. It's like, all right, well, show me over, you know, multiple decades and actually show me a, a, a rules-based backtest that proves that that has validity, and then apply that rules-based backtest to more than just that one stock, apply it to 50 stocks or multiple markets or multiple countries and their averages. That's where I think, you know, a lot of the, then, then those people go silent. Because not only do they not know how to do that, but even if they did, they'd find out that, you know, they might be getting fooled by randomness, to use sort of a Nassim Taleb type of term.
0: Do you at all day trade, or or is it much more as you said, a, per week or longer?
1: No, no. I mean, the, the funds I, I run are entirely uh, weekly. Day trading, yeah, as yeah. you've probably seen, right? There are all kinds of studies that show that day trading just candidly doesn't work um, at all.
0: Um, could be yeah, wrong. It's interesting you say there's that. There's a lot yeah. of noise there.
1: Okay. Yeah, weekly tends to be, from my studies, sort of where there's the most autocorrelation and signal and information. Monthly's a bit lag, daily is too noisy, intraday is, is largely random.
0: So, Michael, yeah, good. Very uh, interesting talking to you. Uh, it's a shame you have to run off to a call, but uh, I can tell everything's a bit frantic this week. Um, but thanks for being on the show. Yeah, no, I
1: appreciate it. And, and yeah, very thoughtful questions. I appreciate the invite.
0: Michael A. Gaillard. If you're enjoying the podcast, do please subscribe. Every extra download makes a difference. And as a final note, if you're keen to take a crack at prop trading with Surge Trader, click the Surge Trader link that I've included in the show notes by signing up with my coupon code ATL10OFF, you'll get 10% off your audition, which is a pretty decent discount if you're looking at the bigger funds of 100K or more. Okay, that's it. Have a great week trading.